When he was the Secretary of State from 1982 to 1989, George Shultz famously administered one final test for any newly appointed ambassador before he or she would head overseas. Now, at this point, they would have already passed multiple rounds of questioning and vetting and confirmation. And so here this ambassador-to-be would think they had crossed the finish line and they would arrive in his office one last time before shipping out and he would explain, there's just one more test you need to pass. They would groan, of course, and he would tell them, walk over to that globe over there and demonstrate to me that you can identify your country. Well, that was pretty easy. So they would quickly and immediately and confidently point to the country to which they were being posted. And he would tell them they were wrong. He would point to the United States. And he would warn them to never forget what country you're representing. Never forget what country you're representing. That's what it means to be an ambassador. To be the official representative of one people to another. It's a prestigious position. There's a lot of influence, but it's one that carries tremendous responsibility for that very reason, that you are the representative of one people to another. And the Bible tells us that every believer in Jesus Christ is an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20 explains, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the appeal. Living faithfully as an ambassador for Jesus Christ is an overwhelming responsibility, and it it represents a radical change from the way we lived our life before before we knew Jesus Christ. And it is a, a work of a lifetime that can only be accomplished through the power of God's Holy Spirit operating within us. And so for this reason, the concerns and the responsibilities of faithfully representing the creator of the universe and his eternal son need to be at the very core of our prayer life, because this is a task far beyond us. To help us, to help reshape and enrich and mature and deepen our relationship with God through prayer, We're taking the first few weeks of this new year to closely examine three crucial prayers of Jesus. And our goal is not to gather interesting facts about prayer. It is to learn from the Master what our prayer life could and should be like. The foundation of every disciple's prayer life needs to be about learning to pray the very heart and soul and will of God as modeled and taught by Jesus Christ. And once we arrive, once we get to that point where, where we are in, in such faithful prayer for God's will, that's when we begin to experience the joy of God's promise to us in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests we have asked of him. These past two Sundays, we've looked at Jesus' model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And now for the next three Sundays, as Philip talked about, we are going to be looking at what is perhaps Jesus' 
most incredible prayer found in John chapter 17. It's often called the high priestly prayer. He is praying in the upper room with the disciples on the, on the night that he is going to be betrayed. Less than 24 hours from the time he lifts up this prayer, he will be dead. And as he prays, we see his foremost priorities as he is praying for himself and his father, his disciples, and his church today. We must not only understand what Jesus was praying that night, but but far more important than that, we need to understand how it needs to, to shape and direct our prayer lives each and every day. So this prayer begins in the upper room, and it comes immediately after he has pronounced words of comfort. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Yes, this is clearly true. Particularly if you're a government employee or contractor, you'll have some tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So he begins praying in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. The whole chapter is his prayer. We're going to look at the first five verses of the prayer today. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify. That's the key word for this portion of the prayer. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Here we see this deep desire for God the Father and Jesus the Son to be glorified. We see that this is Christ's most pressing priority. We must embrace the truth that their ongoing glorification needs to be our most pressing priority prayer priority as well. I would say that the world would be a much better place if every follower of Jesus Christ took seriously and was concerned first and foremost with how we glorify God and Jesus. And So I want to start by just examining these words of Jesus' prayer as we see Jesus pray for the Father and the Son to be glorified. Recall, beginning in just a few hours from this prayer, Christ will be arrested and beaten. He'll be tried, he will be mocked, he will be whipped nearly to death, and he will be nailed to a Roman cross where he will suffer an excruciating death by suffocation. And it is in anticipation of these events that had been planned before time began that Jesus begins in verse 1 by praying, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. As Philip mentioned, throughout the Gospel of John, there has been an anticipation of Jesus' hour. And early on, it's saying, oh, the hour is not now. Oh, the hour has not come. Here, the hour has come. 
He is proclaiming the arrival of the hour, and the hour is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the climactic turning point of all human history. The cross is the ultimate glorification of God and Jesus. It is the way that that Jesus accomplishes the work that God has given him to do of defeating the power of sin and death forever for all who will trust in him. And so here in his prayer, Jesus is requesting something that only God himself can ask for. That the Father would glorify him. Now, Scripture is clear. God does not share his glory with anyone except himself. Isaiah 48.11 explains, My glory I will not give to another. And so here we see a very unique prayer that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is God himself, is asking his heavenly Father to glorify him as only God can be glorified. And he is looking ahead. He is anticipating the events of the next three days. And so Jesus prays in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Because what we see is that all of the love and all of the holiness and all of the mercy and all of the faithfulness and foresight and forgiveness and righteousness and grace and justice of God intersect at the cross. Where the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, the holy, perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God, suffered and died, not because He did anything wrong, but because we have. This is the hour that Jesus is proclaiming. His sacrifice is the very glorification that Jesus requests in verse 1. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Note well here that that Christ's end goal in praying for His own glorification and praying for the cross is to glorify God the Father. Our Savior's ultimate purpose in living and dying and living again is to bring glory to to God the Father. And so we're also catching a glimpse, just a, a little glimpse of that eternal relationship that has existed for all time in, in the Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are seeing and hearing Christ's emphatic desire for the Father to glorify Him so that He can glorify the Father. We see this mutual love and respect and glorification that has existed for all eternity made clear to us at the cross. And as Jesus continues to pray, he asks to be glorified on this cross to give eternal life to all who believe in him. Verses 2 and 3, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's through the glorification of Jesus, through the cross, that we can know Jesus Christ, truly know Him, and, and through Him know the one true living God of the universe. At the cross, Jesus accomplishes His work. He reconciles all who believe in Him to the holy and righteous God of the universe by paying the penalty for all of our sins, by washing away our guilt and shame, by bringing healing where there was only death. Jesus had previously made it clear that the only way to know God the Father was 
was to know Jesus the Son. Right? Shortly before this prayer, he's explaining to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's through the lens of the cross that we most clearly see Jesus the Son completing the work that has been given to him for the glory of God. Here we see the love of God and we see his justice displayed in a God who is willing to suffer in order to make possible the ultimate healing and reconciliation of the people he created in his image. It is for these reasons that that Jesus' final words on the cross before he died are simply, it is finished. The work is done. The peace is brought. The reconciliation made possible. The forgiveness and the healing and the cleansing purchased. Freedom purchased. Afterward, Jesus prays that God would glorify the Son as He had been glorified for all eternity before He had stepped into the world that first Christmas. In verse 5, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one who was present at creation in Scripture makes clear by whom all things were made, is preparing to return to heaven. And he is asking for his former glory to be restored. Jesus had set that glory aside when he had taken on human nature and human flesh. And making this sacrifice was was something he did because God the Father had sent him. And so he had willingly set aside that glory glory in order to glorify the Father. He had willingly set aside his glory for your sake and mine. But now he was about to return to heaven in the the full glory of the resurrected Christ. And and so he is praying for not only his death, but his glorious resurrection and his return to his Father's side to reign forever. This is Jesus' prayer. And the question for us is, what do we do with this? Right? It's not adequate to just read it and say, this is a very beautiful prayer. Good stuff. And it's not appropriate for us, since we are not God, to just take the words themselves and ask for us to be glorified, because that's not going to happen. That's not how it works. So how do we let Christ and his prayer and his priorities reshape our prayer lives? And the answer is, I think, straightforward, though it's difficult to live out. (coughs) Because our prayer needs to be that we glorify the Father, and that we glorify the Son. So first, our prayer should be to glorify the Father. We are ambassadors, as I've said, for God, and our prayer should be that we would be good ones. And we need to realize that this is difficult and high-pressure work, because we're not, we're not ambassadors to those like luxury resort island countries, right, where you get the ambassadorship by contributing a lot of money to the president's campaign. We are ambassadors to a messed-up, broken, dark world, that doesn't really want our embassy at all. Nonetheless, as Paul wrote, God makes his appeal through us. Through us, his ambassadors, not through anyone else. 
So we need to pray that we would become faithful ambassadors for the creator of the universe. And this is done just the same way any other ambassador does, by faithfully representing both the character and the perspectives of the one we represent. See, an earthly ambassador needs to be living and working in a manner that reflects both the the character and the political positions of his or her sending country. And so likewise, we must reflect both the character and the perspectives of the God who sends us. And if we fail to do either of these well, what we do is we present an incomplete or an inaccurate, a false picture of our loving Father in heaven. And so we have to take seriously both of these dimensions of ambassadorship. So we need to pray for God's help in faithfully representing his his character in the world at large. We need to recognize his character because it's it's beautifully summarized for us in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The God we represent is merciful. He is full of grace. He is patient. He is slow to anger. He is overflowing with faithful, rock-solid, unchanging love, and He is also forgiving and just. So is that what we're like? Do all those words describe us? And the way that we interact with our families and our friends and our co-workers and our classmates and complete strangers. 1 Peter 2.12 instructs us to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as an evildoer, right, which they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So whenever someone is interacting with you, are they seeing an accurate picture of God when they deal with you? And I'm sure for some of you that is the case, but there are plenty of times when I fall short and they're not getting a good picture of God out of me. So we need to be praying seriously every day, sometimes every hour or every minute, that our conduct in life and our character and our lifestyle would glorify the God who created us in his image, to be his ambassador in this world. Our life should be becoming increasingly holy and righteous and just and merciful and patient and faithful as we are living it out. Peter writes extensively about this. He reminds us over and over again of our critical role as ambassadors of God the Father. In 1 Peter 1.15 he writes, But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. So is all your conduct holy? I mean, let's just look for this past week. How'd you do? Because mine's not. I fell short. So if you're like me, pray that your conduct would become more holy. That God would change your heart's desires and your character to become more and more holy with each passing day. 
In chapter 2, verse 1, Peter commands to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So if you're struggling with any of these issues, pray that God would help you put these things away so that he would be glorified through you, right? Not just so that you would be a, a better person, but so that he would be glorified through you. God reminds us of our task again in chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if you're struggling with this, make a, a critical element of your daily prayer life. Make this a core of it. Start today. It might just be easier to look at Paul's simple conclusion in 1 Corinthians 6.20. So glorify God in your body. Let that be your prayer each day. But we must also be praying that we would faithfully represent God's perspective in this crazy world in which we live. This, I think, is much harder for us. Because an ambassador speaks out for the interests and the issues of concern to the nation he or she represents. And so as ambassadors, we need to realize that God has a perspective on the issues of the day in every era and in every nation. And as his ambassadors, we're obliged to study his word regularly to understand his perspective and how it differs from the world's perspective. And then we can't stop with just having some good facts. We are obliged as ambassadors to advocate for his viewpoint, no matter how unpopular it may be. And understand, when we talk about his viewpoint, it's not about a political party. It is about issues of the kingdom of God, issues that will be applauded by some and jeered by others, that will guarantee to irritate people on every side of a political spectrum because we are representing God, not a party or platform. God has a perspective on issues of law and justice, on wealth and poverty, on family and society, on equality and freedom, on sexuality and materialism. And we need to understand these and we need to express these perspectives. Just to name a few, right? God has a perspective in favor of the dignity and flourishing of all human life, and a perspective against racism and oppression and injustice and slavery and human trafficking. But there are so many more issues on which God has a perspective, and we need to be seeking it out and representing it. It's our duty as ambassadors to understand what God's Word has to say on each of these issues so that we can develop and advocate for a biblical worldview. And that, let me tell you, is something that very few Christians actually have or do. Let's pray for faithfulness in reading God's Word and for illumination by the Holy Spirit in understanding it and applying it to our day and our time, our setting, and our issues that we face. And let's pray for the courage to boldly stand for what is in God's plan for human flourishing and to lovingly and gracefully and resolutely stand against what is not in his plan for human flourishing. Our prayer must become that we would speak well on behalf of the God we represent. This is how we best glorify God the Father. But Jesus also demonstrates we should be praying that we would glorify the Son, 
right? The two greatest priorities, glorify the Father and glorify the Son. And what I described above certainly does glorify Jesus as we represent his character and his perspective. But as we meditate on this prayer of Jesus, we also have to recognize that there is a unique glory of Jesus Christ. The unique glory of Jesus Christ is his death, burial, and resurrection. The means by which he redeemed sinful mankind from slavery to sin and death. That is the unique glory of our risen Savior. And this is what Jesus is asking for to be glorified by in verse 1. This is how he's able to give eternal life to those who trust in him as he prays in verse 2. He's praying for God to strengthen him, that he would go to the cross and open the path to eternal life for all those who know and believe in him as the Son, and thereby know and believe God the Father. We uniquely glorify Jesus by sharing this path, by proclaiming the good news of a God who sacrificed everything because of his love for the fallen creatures who continue to betray him by their choices to sin. Glorifying Jesus in this way is our command as a church. It was given to us by the risen Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We uniquely glorify Jesus when we introduce other people to him. We glorify Jesus and we don't worry about doing it with sophistication. We don't worry about it to the point that we water it down and hide the truth about him in order to be more acceptable to the ears of our audience. We uniquely glorify Jesus when we act like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is challenging for us. This is scary for us. This is uncomfortable for us. But this is how we glorify the Father and glorify the Son. And it might well be beyond our ability to live and speak like this. But it's not beyond the ability of the God whom we seek to glorify. And that's an, such an important part of the good news, is that we are not on, in this on our own. right? Jesus himself said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Scripture assures us that as we speak, the Holy Spirit speaks through us. And so therefore, let us pray and pray and pray some more that both individually and as a church, we would glorify God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, just as Jesus taught us in this prayer. That we would recognize that what's at stake for every person we encounter who does not yet believe in Jesus Christ is nothing less than eternal life. 
So pray that we would care enough about those we encounter to care about their eternal destination for the glory of God the Father and God the Son. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, once again we praise you and celebrate the privilege we have of being able to come before you in prayer and speak to you openly and honestly and know that you hear us. So Lord, my prayer as we go into this new year is that you would deepen and enrich and strengthen and remold as needed our prayer life. To conform to the image of prayer taught to us by your son Jesus, Lord, that we would be acting and praying in your will and know you more deeply and clearly by so doing. Lord, as we begin looking at this great prayer of Jesus, I pray that you will help us to truly apply this to the way that we pray, that we would pray first and foremost, that we would glorify you, Lord, that we would represent you well in the world, we would glorify your Son, testifying honestly and truthfully without fear to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.